You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Our text this morning comes from the book of Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 15. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. But this is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary, Now, the intermediary applies to more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For as the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let me pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for calling a group of people as you have been year after year after year in creating your church. And I'm specifically thankful for this group here at Bethel Bible and White House. Father, thank you for their love for each other and their commitment to you. And now as we open your word and we talk through, Lord, we ask that you would Enlighten us with the truth that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning because without him, we could know nothing. Father, that you would take your word this morning and you would fulfill the promise that says that your word never returns to you void. Would it accomplish your purposes in us this morning? It's in your son's name that we pray and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I may have to do a couple of magic tricks or something to keep you awake with the rain falling in our beautiful metal building because it is twice as loud as anywhere else. You know, so this morning, we are right in the middle of the second section of Galatians. So Galatians, Paul did it real nicely for us. Chapters 1 and 2 are that historical setting. In the next two chapters, 3 and 4, it gives us the theological section that we're right in the middle of. And then beginning in chapters 5 and 6, it's really the application of all that he has been telling us. But remember that Paul is writing to several churches in Galatia, which is kind of southern modern-day Turkey. So cities like uh, Lystra, Derby, uh, uh, Pisidia. Uh, Iconium, and he's writing to these different churches in these different cities, but the problem is all the same. But what he has to do and what he has been doing is 
Even though the problem is the same, he is coming at it from several different point of views. He wants to make sure that even though it shows you how um, uh, filtrating kind of false doctrines are, that it has come into all of these churches, the problem is the same, but he's going to come at it from different point of views. But to see uh, what Paul is going to be about in today's passage, we need to kind of make sure we're following his kind of train of thought. So we've been uh, several weeks ago, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5. We, we, you saw this, that we received the Spirit of God, and that is the blessing of Abraham, that God would send his Spirit, that through faith in Christ, not works of the law. Then the only way you can then be empowered by the Spirit is by faith and not works. If that's how it comes, that is how you are to then continue. So the members of Galatia, Remember, they'd been bewitched, uh, kind of like a spell had been cast over them, into thinking that you start your Christian life by faith, but you complete it by works. Basically, the Spirit's the one that lights the fire, but you have to keep throwing wood on it and make sure you keep it burning. And Paul says that that belief, actually what it does, it cancels out grace. It is dishonoring to Christ. Not only is justification by faith, sanctification, but coming like Christ, it is also by faith. So then he moved into 6 through 9, where Paul takes the thought with the example of Abraham. The only way to be a child of Abraham is through faith like Abraham, and that's his logic. The blessing of Abraham comes not to those that keep the law to gain God's blessing, but those who trust in the promises just as Abraham did. Then last week, Paul makes the same point a different way. He showed that actually trying to keep the law, do you remember this? That when you try to live according to the law, it's actually going to bring you under the curse of the law. I love how one commentator put it this way. He says, it's like someone who takes the gracious railroad track of the law on which the locomotive of the Spirit is pulling us to glory in the Pullman car of faith. But then you try to lift those tracks and put them on their end, and you try to use it like a ladder to climb to heaven by works. That person is actually coming under the curse of the law. So all three of those sections are saying, you cannot be complete a completely sanctified Christian, a child of Abraham, a receiver of this promise, if you are living by works of the law. Instead, it is by faith in the Son of God. Even to obey the law, to obligate God to bless you, is actually making you a transgressor, a breaker of the law itself. So this is where we left off. This is his train of thought. And so today, Galatians 3 beginning in verse 15. This past week, I read something interesting I thought fit very well with this passage. It was a man named Albert Rothenberg. Never heard of him before till last week, but he was a researcher that was devoted to studying about using opposites in creative thinking. And he named this process the uh, Janusian, the Janusian Thinking And Genesian thinking is the ability to imagine two opposite things, ideas or concepts or images, existing simultaneously. If you can hold opposites, this was the thinking. For example, being able to imagine 
your mother as a baby, but also as an older woman. But I, I see it this way. So several of you are teachers. Marla is a teacher. And it's always amazing when you run into children, like say at Brookshire's or somewhere else. And they see this teacher and it's almost like they're shocked that this person that's a teacher, they think you live at school. They think sometimes that you may get out, but to see you doing something normal, they're thinking, what are you doing? You're a teacher. Why are you out here among us? And it's like the only way they could see you is a teacher. And they're shocked that you're doing kind of ordinary things. But this Rothenberg, this is what he discovered, was that geniuses resorted to that mode of thinking quite often and it going to original insights. Guys like Einstein, Mozart, Edison, Van Gogh, Pasteur, uh, Picasso, they all, when they studied them, they all had this ability. Picasso created the very first abstract piece of art by taking and tearing apart objects, rearranging them, and then presenting them from a dozen different point of view. Einstein. He was able to imagine an object in motion and also at rest at the same time. Even talked about, Pastor, the ability uh, to take the idea of a disease could actually be used and function to prevent diseases. So what we'll see today is something similar to this Genesian thinking that we're going to venture back into Galatians and look at two things that, that look and they seem to be complete opposites, but somehow they have to be able to be held together. And if they don't, then God cannot be trusted because it's going to make him a liar. So look at verse 15. Paul begins and he says to I want to give you a human example. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an example you can relate to, an everyday example, brothers. So once again, he loves them. Uh, they are special to him. Even with a man-made covenant. So let's use this as the example. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so what he is doing is taking an everyday example from Greek and Jewish life and there would be a Greek or Jewish law that would say that once a covenant or a will had been created, that once you did that, it could not, under any circumstances, be changed or altered. So I think maybe for us, the closest thing might be a person's last will and a testament. That once it is ratified, so you create one, yes, you can change it, but once you're dead, that's it. No one can change it. What you said is what you, the person is supposed to take that and they are then to execute your wishes. So it would be something like this, that you're the executor of someone's will, you receive that, they died, and they're going to leave some money to someone. You as their executor do not get to come in and say, you know, you were left this money, but only if you do this or that. You don't get to add any kind of conditions to that, uh, that, 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 um, that will that was made. So what we're going to see is that once he's saying, once you create this will, you do not get to change it. You do not get to add to it. You do not get to cancel it out. And Paul's going to show it's the same way with the promises of Abraham. So we're going to get into this Genesian thinking. And Paul's going to take us back to about 2,000 years B.C. to Abraham. 
and then to Moses, who lived centuries later. Look at verse 16. Now, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So here's the background. So God called Abraham uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he calls him and he promises he's going to give him many descendants, and with him and his seed would also receive land. That's the promises to Abraham. And then his seed, through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. These promises to God, uh, to Abraham, were then confirmed in Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. So that was the promises. That was the covenant that was made. But even Jacob, Jacob died outside the promised land, even in Egyptian exile. Then Jacob's 12 sons, they died in exile too. So we're thinking, well, where is this promise land? But then God, 430 years later, centuries pass. And after Abraham, God raises up Moses. And through him, he then delivers the Israelites from slavery. And he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. So here, Paul is probably... Probably refuting an argument. Sometimes when you're, you're reading through, it's almost like there's a conversation that you're reading that we're not actually a part of. I think the Judaizers are going to present an argument, and maybe, just maybe it could go something like this. Paul, we, uh, we don't agree with you on Abraham. We've established that. We think that it was his works that showed him worthy of the blessing of promise. But let's, for the sake of argument, Paul, we'll give you that Abraham was justified by faith. Maybe that's the way God wanted to start Israel's history. But there is no way, there is no way you can escape the fact that 430 years after Abraham, God thought it was then necessary to add the law through Moses. And if the law, with its 600 plus commandments, doesn't teach us that our inheritance comes from the basis of works, what does it teach them? When we told the Galatian believers who began by faith to use their own efforts to complete their sanctification through works of the law, we're doing exactly what God did. He gave them the promise, then he gives you the law. So that's exactly what we are doing here, Paul. He gave the promise to Abraham, which you say received by faith, but then... He added the law to make it clear that what our part in this is then to follow. So history shows that our inheritance does come from works of the law. Why else? Then why else would God add the law 430 years later if not to make it crystal clear that we have to go beyond the view of Abraham and apply our own efforts? And this then will earn us the right of an inheritance. And I'm, I'm reading that, I'm thinking, that actually might make sense, that God makes a promise, there's a period of 430 years, he's doing some things with them, then he gives them the law. God began this way, but you are then to move to the law. 
Now, I believe that might be the argument that Paul is addressing. But what we see is that the promise to Abraham and then the giving of the law. that So God makes this promise and then he brings this promise to ourselves. They would say that we must then obey the law that God gave. So, that's the argument. Look at Paul's response. Verse 18. Okay, he says, For if the inheritance comes by law, doing, obeying, it no longer then can come by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul is saying that if inheritance, the blessing, comes by keeping the law, it cannot in any way, shape, form, or fashion, then come by the promise. Paul is saying, listen, it's one or the other. You don't get both. But here's where Paul is going to start using that Genesian thinking. How do you hold them? He says, listen, you can't have it both ways. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You either get it or you get to eat. And this is what he says. The blessing cannot come from keeping the law. It can only come through faith. You can't have it both ways. But he's going to say, but the law does not annul or cancel the promise. Even though you don't get to have it both ways, the law is not going to cancel out the promise. So look at verse 19. So this is just common sense. The question would be, verse 19, then why the law? If it's by faith or it's by works, you can't have it both ways. And you're telling us it is by faith, Paul. Then why in the world would God give us the law? Why do this? What's the purpose of it? And I think that's the question the Judaizers were asking. So Paul is going to show them how to hold two things, complete opposite, faith and works of the law, how to hold them together simultaneously, that the law does not cancel the promise of God. So this next text, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see three purposes of the law. So Paul's going to lay it out. Look at why then the law, question mark, here it is. It was added because of transgression. So here's the first purpose of the law. The first purpose of the law is to identify sin. Meaning you can't hold someone responsible for something that they did not know was wrong. So God gives us the law. Meaning this, you shouldn't, you know, punish your child for not putting their toys away if they don't know that they are to put their toys away. If they don't know it's wrong to leave that Lego minefield out for you in the middle of the night, then you can't punish them for something they didn't know was wrong. Or can you imagine a teenage driver if they were never told to stop at a red light? I mean, imagine what would happen if they didn't know this was wrong. Imagine the chaos that would happen. So the first purpose, it says, is was added because of transgressions. Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the first thing the law does is it labels sin. It allows you the the ability to know what is sin and what isn't. It identifies sin. But here's where it gets crazy. It also was added for transgressions. The second purpose tells us it is to produce or to reveal sin. Listen to Romans 5. You go from chapter 4 to uh, Romans 5. Paul's still writing. 
Now, the law came in to increase the trespasses. Where sin increased, base abound all the more. So the law was given so that you could hold it up and you could then identify what was sin and what is not. But it was also used to produce sin. Might be like this one. Your boss sends you a memo. Maybe detailing three things that action steps that you need to take. You take that memo and you throw it in the trash. Trash bin nowadays. That memo, what it does, it makes visible transgression out of invisible rebellion. Meaning the rebellion that you just just exhibited is already there. You think you know better. You think you might deserve more than you are getting. The memo, the boss's commands, what he wants you to do, revealed the rebellion that was already there. The memo, the boss's commands, it produced or it brought to the surface the sin that was hiding. So the law, it can reveal sin. You can go, yes, that's sin. No, that's okay. But the law also, it produces a sin. It brings it to the surface of what is already within you. So the law turns the hidden sin of distrust and rebellion into open transgressions of obedience. It's already there. And the law simply brings it to the surface. The law not only reveals the present sin, it even gives rise to more and more sin. When you hold the law up, you know what it's going to do? It's going to show and produce more and more sin that is already hidden. You hear your children fighting. Sometimes I do. You call them in. Obviously, there's sin and rebellion. It's already there because she hit him or he hit her. Uh, She said something mean to him or uh, he said something mean to her. It's already there. You call them down. Something has happened. Sin is there. When you call them in, you've probably set them down. You say, what happened? You've probably never heard this. Father, forgive me for I've sinned against you, my sister, and your holy commands. I've yet to hear that. You know how it usually goes? You know something happens. You've heard something. Ow! Sin is there. You call them down. And you know what you usually hear? You say, what happened? Well, she did this, or, or he did this. And what it does, it, there's already sin. But then you present the law there, and all it does, it produces more and more sin because nothing is their fault. It's like Paul Tripp said. If you convince yourself that your sin is caused by people, places, or things outside of you, you are convincing yourself you do not need the gospel. So the law, it reveals, it brings to the surface, it produces the sin, the evil, the transgressions that is already there. It's like someone wise once told me, no lie ever stands alone. You'll always have to tell another lie to cover up the lie you told. And that's what the law does. It produces sin. It's already there. It just brings it to the surface, but it produces more and more sin. But don't lose this. The law reveals sin. We could say the law intensifies sin. It brings it to the surface. But Paul will insist that the law is not itself sinful or evil. In fact, on the contrary, the fact that our human hearts 
can take something as pure and as good as God's law and make it prideful, full of selfishness, shows really how corrupt our human heart really is. And we'll see this in detail over the next few verses. What I want to do, I want to read um, the last part of 19 and 20, but I'm going to save most thoughts until next week, and here's kind of why. Paul's going to get back into it next week, but I've yet to really figure out what Paul's saying. I tried really hard, so I need another week on this one. Here's how it reads. So the law came, and this is how it reads. So law um, was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. We know that's going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20, this is where I'm not... Now, an intermediary applies to more than one, but God is one. So basically, I think Paul says that the law was put in place through the angels and by an intermediary, most likely Moses, until the offspring who is Christ came. And we're going to talk about next week about the law being a tutor for us. Now, I'm not really for sure what to make of verse 20, at least not yet, but My best guess right now is that I think Paul is saying that you're looking at two covenants. Covenant of the works and covenants of the law. But don't lose sight that really there is only one God. And that they both can have meaning and purpose. He can hold them together. But we'll talk about this more next week. So look at verse 20. Is the law then contrary? Is the law contrary to the promises of of God and Paul, here's his answer: Certainly not. You're going to have to put on your Genesian thinking cap. Does the law stand in contradiction to the promises of God that were made through faith? The Judaizers they saw these two covenants at odds with each other, but Paul says no, because here's how it reads: For if a law had been given, could give life then righteousness, yes, would indeed be by the law, if it could do that. But the Scripture, it imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So how how can you hold these two opposites together? It's only by sin that men and women, we inherit the promise because they cannot keep the law. And our inability to keep the law should make the promises that much more desirable. Knowing it's good, but knowing you can't have it should make them all the more desirable. Because the law, it kept people in sin. That's what the law did. It kept them in sin. It did not give them life. Because here's the key. Because the law was not accomplished, was not accompanied by the power of of the Holy Spirit to enable people to actually obey it. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Meaning, you can do a lot of good things, but they will never amount to anything, especially anything eternal, if not done in faith. In fact, our natural self-centered hearts, they can only produce pride, maybe thinking we can do it on our own, Or rebellion, just choosing to totally disobey. That is until the promise by faith 
whom Jesus Christ was given, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So here's the Genesian thinking. The law is good. It is holy and it is necessary. It allows you to identify sin, but it also it's going to expose all of that sin that is within you. But when the power of the Holy Spirit was given and lives inside you, the law can only identify and produce or reveal the sin. That's all it can do. And Scripture is going to hold every sinner in prison for his sin. In order that which was promised by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe the Holy Spirit. And then it all comes together. Listen to how Martin Luther put it. The principal point of the law, the, the, the thing of the law is that it was made it, men not better, but it makes us worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin, it identifies it. By the knowledge, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be given to seek grace and to come to that blessed seed, which is Jesus Christ. So here's what I think the third purpose of the law is. It's simply to point us to Jesus. And the Judaizers, they could not see or accept this. The law, it identifies and it shows us what sin is. But then the law, it reveals and it produces. It brings to the surface that sin that is in all of us. But then the law should point us to Jesus. Because you can't be freed from sin until you realize that you are being held captive by it. So the law, it reveals your condition. And also your inability to save yourself. That's what God has been doing over and over again. And in the end... The law should point us to the only one that can actually save us, Jesus. And so, what can we then take away from these verses this morning? So here's maybe some applicational thoughts. First of all, I think we see the sovereign workings of God. That God was working His purpose year after year after year. In fact, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells the story of God's sovereign purposes of grace and his master plan of salvation through Christ. And shame on people for neglecting the Old Testament. And we might seem to see two things that, that are held, they cannot be held together, are faith and works. But what we see is that God has a masterful plan where they fit together. Second, I think the reality of the reflection that we actually should see in the mirror. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law of Moses because he had to make things worse before he could ever make them better. In fact, the law, you know what? It identifies sin, it reveals it, and it condemns it. In fact, the purpose of the law was to expose what is really underneath the surface. Sinful, rebellious, prideful hearts, that actually stand under God's judgment, totally helpless to save ourselves. So I think this morning is a great reminder that we need to take an honest look in the mirror. We need to take an honest look in, in, into this law. The evil, it has to be fully exposed before it can be completely healed. You know, the problem isn't just with the world out there that is trying to normalize things that go against God's commands. Even though that is true, but the problem, it lies within our own hearts. And third, 
man, if you are in Christ, be grateful that by grace through faith in Christ, your heart of stone has been removed and you have received a heart of faith and love. That no one, you cannot truly appreciate the gospel until the law has first been revealed to you. And I think that's what Paul is saying. So, think of the law this way. You know, every day you walk outside and the sky is full of thousands and thousands of beautiful stars. But it isn't until day gives way to night and and darkness covers the sky that you can actually see and appreciate them. They're always there. So it is with the law. It is through darkness that you can then see the beauty of the cross. So this morning, I want to transition into communion with actually a quote by John Stott. Thinking of the law and its purposes, this is what he says. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us Will we call upon Christ for justification in life? Not until the law has driven us to despair in ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel and raise us to heaven. So this morning, our time of communion, I want to remind us that the church was given... Two ordinances, baptism that we saw last week and the Lord's Supper. And both of these ordinances represent the death and the new life that are always done in communion. The Lord's Supper, it's a time for us to remember. And so as a a way to gather our thoughts this morning, I want us to think about that in this moment of communion, Christ is affirming His love for you. The fact that we are able to participate in the Lord's Supper, indeed that Jesus invites us to come, it is a reminder and a reassurance that God loves us individually and personally. When we take the Lord's Supper, we really are finding assurance again and again of Christ's personal love for us. But remember that Christ's love for us is not built or based upon what we could do for Him. His love is based and built upon what He has actually done for us. His love is not something we find by earning it. We find it simply by believing. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.